The bilateral symmetrical stuff allows you to ramp up that force and that pressure because from an axial skeletal standpoint, same position. Good morning, happy Monday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay, interesting weekend this past weekend. Closed up shop on iFest 2.0. Everything getting moved over to iFest 3.0. Training is up and running. Physical therapy should be up and running this week. Um, so kind of excited about that. Uh, digging into today's Q&A. This is a question um, that Manuel initiated on one of the more recent uh, uh, Coffee and Coaches conference calls that we were talking about force production on single leg, relative motion in the pelvis, and the influence of bilateral symmetrical activities. And one of the things we're going to want to recognize is that that things don't have to look exactly like something to, to have a favorable influence. For instance, bilateral symmetrical activities, high force producing activities are actually helpful in single leg activities. So for instance, we talked about agility in this call where the force is getting very, very high. And there's a point in time where we want a reduction in relative motion um, within the axial skeleton for that high force production. This is where bilateral symmetrical activities come in handy because we don't have to worry about the turning that's associated um, in, in the, the control element of a single leg activity. So we can, we can focus on that high force production that we're actually going to utilize um, in a single leg activity. So as we would move into a cut and that point in time where we need the, the highest force production to the ground, the least amount of relative motion gets closer and closer and closer to what would be represented in the high force of that bilateral symmetrical activity. So again, that's why they are useful. Anyway, I think you'll find this call uh, somewhat useful. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Monday, and I'll see you later. You know, when we, um, so as we lift heavier and whatnot, we, we lose relative motion, or, we, or at least we don't want relative motion as much. You know, We're limiting we it, yes. Limit it. We want to yeah. limit it. If you're moving, there's, there's yeah. So... Okay. You know, in the in an example of say maybe a squat or a deadlift, so then are we more con, uh, concerned with how how the femur moves within the pelvis rather than the relative motion of the pelvis? Because I, I I was thinking about last time we talked we talked when you do a single leg movement with your your true single leg with one foot off the uh -huh. ground uh -huh. you lock you lock the pelvis into position and yeah. you're really training how the femur moves within the pelvis. So I was just trying to connect those two concepts between lifting heavy and then true single legged work. Yeah. Um, so, and again, we have to, we have to consider the, the context so it's like the relative load that you're, that you're trying to move. So, so let's just say that we're really close to our, our peak capabilities. Um, if, if I alter the shape of the pelvis, mm as I am moving and, and, it, and it is changing. So that's the thing that we like, like, you know, if, if, if this is the full excursion of the pelvic shape change, I might be doing this, right? Which is one of the limitations of force output, by the way, right? Mm -hmm. So people that change shape a lot as they're moving weight, they don't move, lift a lot of weight because they can't, they can't maintain the, the force output. They can't maintain pressure. There's too much fluctuation in pressure. So, so the closer I get to peak output, the less motion I want because I, I need to maintain 
the, the, the pressure that provides me the force output, mm -hmm. right? So the amount of relative motion in the pelvis has to be reduced to increase force production. For me to perform the activity itself, okay? That hip joint has to move. Like for me to go down and pick up a bar off the floor and then to stand up with it, the hip joint's moving, right? And again, that's one of the limitations of picking the weight up, right? So those that can move the hip through a sufficient excursion to say that you're doing the lift, but yet still maintain the pressure via reduction of relative motions, they lift more weight, mm -hmm. right? So you're gonna always move in that direction. And, and you can tell, right? I mean, you've done enough light squats versus heavy squats that you can tell that there's just, a totally different sensation associated with max effort work compared to the lighter speed stuff or, or just a light warm up kind of a weight, mm -hmm. right? And you can tell because you can breathe, right? So we can go back to Andrew's question, you know, where we're talking about context, it's like, okay, let's just, let's just put, you know, 60 kilos on the bar versus, you know, 200. It's like your behavior has to change because the amount of pressure that you're creating is significantly different. Mm -hmm. okay. So, so here, let, let me, let me, let me throw out a little bit of context. Okay. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about, when you talk about cutting activities, like, like agility, a lot of people will say that you shouldn't use bilateral symmetrical lifts because um, you're pushing off of one leg when you're making a cut. And they, they say, therefore, single leg work is more specific. And I would argue that bilateral symmetrical activities magnify the pressure that's associated with your, with your ability to, to hold a position, right? So, there, so that as you change direction, there's a point where you got to stop motion, right? Just like everything else. The bilateral symmetrical stuff allows you to ramp up that force and that pressure because from an axial skeletal standpoint, same position, right? So there's value, there's tremendous value in high force bilateral symmetrical activities with less relative motion because when I got to stop motion under any circumstance, whether it's through a single leg or through, through two legs, um, I, can, I can take advantage of my shape changing capabilities to produce higher levels of force. What about the reverse of that? Uh, what, explain so, the reverse. For example, um, you know, if you're doing um, a lot of bilateral activities, mm -hmm. then what's the utility of doing true single-legged work? Or you know, or at least some people could say, yeah, you know, you you don't. Who cares about your one-legged squat when you squat with two legs? You know what I mean. It, well, so again, it, it is it is different in, in regards to to how you're going to be driving the force through the axial skeleton. It does so by saying that that there's high force production with bilateral symmetrical it does not negate the value of being able to push through a single leg. What I'm what I'm saying is is that when we talk about specificity, there are there are other elements of specificity. So ground contact through the through the single leg support is actually important because I need to orient over a single point of contact. 
to produce that force. So that, again, there is value in that. So it would be like saying like, um, if you want to increase your agility, do, do, do back squats and, and you could be right, but then to not do any agility at all and expect that to, to translate, it may not work, right? So there, there are elements that, and especially the turn that's associated with single leg, right? So when I'm bilateral symmetrical, okay, I don't have to worry about turning quite so much because of my ground contacts help me reduce that element. When I go to a single leg, as soon as I pick up that other foot, my body wants to start turning, right? And so I need to teach myself to resist that turn, thus the importance of the specificity of working on a single leg, right? So to move in and out of that, where I do need some relative motion, it may behoove me to, to do both, right? Mm -hmm. There's, and again, what do I need them most, right? What will provide the greatest benefit? Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, if, if I had a thorax and a pelvis that were about the same width, so I'm built kind of like a refrigerator, it would be easier for me to stack weight on that than if I had a funnel that was sitting on top of a tiny little pelvis. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, we had a great call on IFS University yesterday. If you're not an IFS University, please go to ifsuniversity.com. Um, get yourself signed up so you can participate in these calls. These, that, it was a great call yesterday. Um, a lot of great questions from those folks. So uh, appreciate you very much for you folks on IFS University. Okay. Digging into today's Q&A, this is with Matt. Matt asked a question that started out as a connective tissue behavior question in regards to force production and velocity, and then evolved into a little bit more of a structural representation of, of what would be ideal under certain circumstances to produce to, to produce force. And so great foundational representations of, of the model in regards to, to those um, influences in regards to performance, whether it be, again, force production or velocity. So this would be a very useful question for a lot of people, especially if, if you're still being exposed to the early phases of, of the model where we're talking about connective tissues and then the physical structures. Uh, if you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience Everyone have an outstanding Tuesday, and I will see you later. My question, my question is a little more model-based, and I just wanted to chat about some ideas that I had in respect to pressure uh, and how, you know, we're talking about our water balloon or our tube, tube, toothpaste representation. With and so, like, thinking of, a, thinking of a vessel that contains a certain amount of fluid, if I have a balloon or I have a... Uh, Let's use a hydraulic ram as an example. So if yep. I have a big hydraulic ram that has a lot of internal space, I can force or start with more, more fluid. I can create more pressure because I have more volume to work with uh, okay. than I can smaller on a smaller ram. Correct. Now, bearing that in mind, if we superimpose that on, on a body, and it's obviously not this straightforward, but just trying to get a representation in my mind, if... Is it feasible that one of the reasons that I could drive more uh, force or, or, or strength through a, a muscle that has a greater volume is because I have more pressure, to, I have a greater volume to start with? 
right. Yes, so, sir. Okay, Absolutely. so going taking that taking that to the next sort of variable that I can see. If I had a water balloon and a basketball that were both of the same size, they would both technically, you know, contain the same amount. You could you could hold the same amount of volume within them, but the external um, how would you want to put it? The skin, the external, yes. the, what it's yet, what it's held together with, yeah. is stiffer on one than the other. It is. Now, wondering whether we can, is there any inference that can be drawn by the model as to how that works with, say, connective tissue or something of that nature yes. to be able to impose more pressure? So you've got a power lifter or a sprinter or someone who, whose tissue, whose connective tissue stiffens over time their ability to then impart that pressure obviously improves yep. than someone novice trainer. Yep. Does any of that kind of flow together as far as yes. you're concerned? Yes. Yeah. So, so, so which would be easier to stand on the basketball or the balloon? Oh, well, if you can, if you didn't want it to give way underneath you, you can stand on the basketball. Right. So, so what representation do you want in regards to your force production? Yeah, well, the basketball. You want okay. something with it. Yeah, hang on, hang on. Let me help you. Let's just say you had enough flexibility in the basketball that you could like grab it and you could you could elongate it a little bit. Okay. All right. You can follow me so far. You take the balloon and you stretch the balloon. Okay. And then you let go. Which one's going to be faster? If you could grab it and let it go, yeah, it would be the water balloon. Yeah. So you so so we're just talking connective tissue stiffness now, aren't we? You see the difference? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so like one's not great for force production, but one is also great for speed versus the other one, right? Because it takes time for the deformation to occur. One deforms faster, therefore it can as it releases its energy, it does so at a higher rate. It's like, so, you know, which one would you like to get snapped in the arm by somebody like pulling back a basketball and then releasing it or the balloon and getting snapped in the arm? It's like, well, the, the one that snaps you in the arm, the fastest is the one that's going to hurt. So, so again, mm. that's, that's where the yielding comes into play, right? Okay. This, this is why, this is why there's always the concern about secondary consequences in regards to training. It's like, and now we, we can go all the way back to the, to the beginning of the call where we're talking about distribution of resources, right? So it's like, okay, how stiff do I want this thing to be? Where's the optimum in regards to stiffness? If I'm trying to produce high force, it may behoove me to be more stiff. If I'm trying to produce high velocity, it might behoove me to be less stiff because I need to be able to deform the tissue at a higher rate, right? That's what speed is. So my your balloon represents a more yielding um, action. And then the, the basketball would be the, the more stiff representation or overcoming action, right? So would that it would stand a reason then that perhaps the reason that you would see, say, a power lifter um, of uh of a similar weight to a bodybuilder the bodybuilder may appear physically bigger uh but the power lifter uh would generally be let's just generalize it and say that they're stronger they can move more weight in a particular activity would that be just more down to 
movement efficiency, neural pathways, things of that nature, as opposed to their individual. Like, so if you were to group together a bunch of muscles that might be used, you know, bench press or a squat, for instance, test each muscle in isolation, chances are the bodybuilder might have a greater capacity to use the muscles individually, but the power lifter, because of their practice, their, you know, neural pathways, the uh, efficiency of the movement, they can move more load with those mother muscles put collectively together. All right. So, so you're, you're um, asking a question about a multifactorial process. All of those things matter. Variables, yeah. Well, all of those things matter, and then to whatever varying degree, right? Some can compensate for other other elements. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, if you're a bodybuilder, would it? So, you ever seen um, a Mr. Olympia with a 42 inch waist? A 42 inch waist. Yes, sir like 42 inches in circumference, like a big wide waist, big wide uh, hip on a, on a Mr. Olympia. Ever seen one? No. Why not? Because it's not, not pretty. It's not no. pretty, right? Bodybuilding is a, is, a, is a beauty contest, right? Essentially. And there are certain things that are aesthetically pleasing to the eye, right? That are more representative of success in that, in that environment power lifters would benefit more from a, a, a different structure, right? So, so they look different and therefore they produce pressure in a different manner. Um, I would also argue that, that it, when you get up into the higher classes of, of, of power lifters, they are equally um, as muscular as bodybuilders are, but their physical structure is less pleasant, right? Yeah, okay. They're yeah. carrying a ton of muscle. Right. They also yeah. might have a ton of body fat that goes with them because there's a benefit to that. So, so we can go right back to your, you know, putting more stuff into a muscle creates more pressure. Well, guess what? If I jam more stuff into your belly, intra-abdominal, you know, uh, body fat, I can compress that and it makes me more rigid and it allows me to lift heavier weights. Right. So again, multifactorial process, but we're also dealing with structure. So under certain circumstances, it, it, you know, if, if I had a thorax and a pelvis that were about the same width, so I'm built kind of like a refrigerator, it would be easier for me to stack weight on that than if I had a funnel that was sitting on top of a tiny little pelvis, right? Now, if you go back and you watch the old Ronnie Coleman videos, um, he, he had the ability to sort of change shape a little bit under some heavier loads, right? So you watch him do the, you know, the 800 pound squat. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what, Memo, what, what was that? You gave me a peace sign or is that a two? No, because he did it. Oh, he did a double? You do Yeah. Yeah, he did a double. Um, he paid the price for that one. Um, but, but aside from that point, um, but, but again, it's like, you know, he was, he was very, very wide as, as a human being, but, and again, had enough structure that, it didn't really matter um, where he was capable of producing that type of pressure, right? Uh, so again, you're, you're looking at this from a multifactorial standpoint, but the rules are, are pretty straightforward. It's like he who produces most pressure wins as far as force production goes. So um, again, if I have a, a skeletal structure that allows higher force production, I can superimpose a ton of muscle mass on top of that. I can squeeze the bejesus out of it. I'm going to produce more force. 
right? So the basic rule, even in, in, in the, the, the literature, you know, we go into the scientific literature and you look at the influence of cross-sectional area and force production, it stands to reason that the more cross-sectional area that I do have, my force production is higher, mm. right? Yeah. But when we talk about com complex lifts, right? So I have to use my whole body to lift a weight. Now I have a pressure mechanism that may have a limitation as to what I can demonstrate. But if again, and it's just like you said, if you look at a muscle in isolation, you look at the pure cross-sectional area force production, bigger muscle wins. Yeah. Every yeah. time, yeah. every time. So would that hold true then, when you were talking about pelvic diaphragm, you're looking at pressure and it's, I guess, one of the reasons that we can generate more internal pressure with a closed or concentric pelvic diaphragm than we can when it's not. Yes. Plus, yeah, yeah. Okay. So how do, you, how do you get in? So here you go, boss. How do you get into a deep squat? How do you get into a deep squat? Yes, sir. In respect, in respect to what? Re Pressure so, management? Or so for you to get into a deep squat, you have to have descension of the pelvic diaphragm to a, to a sufficient degree to access that space. Yeah. Okay. Something has to give way to create the space. It's not always a pelvic diaphragm. Sometimes it's a lower back, by the way. Let's, let's be honest about that. But we're talking about like in a perfect world kind of a representation, right? that I will go in the direction that the pelvic diaphragm can move. So, so for me to sit down into a deep squat, but to push up out of the deep squat, that has to reverse gears. It has to push up and create that higher pressure mechanism. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So shape no. matters, cross-sectional area matters, um, neural drive matters, like all that stuff is, is, is in play to whatever degree. Yeah. But, but yeah. ultimately it's, it's, when we talk about force production, the, the limitation in shape change can be beneficial. When we talk about speed, I better be able to deform very, very quickly. Yeah. So all of your representations for me, I totally get. Cool. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Oh, let's just throw out all bilateral symmetrical. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Today is Wednesday. That means tomorrow's Thursday, 6 a.m. tomorrow morning, coffee and coaches conference call as usual. These calls are getting international. We got people from all over the world in these calls now, which is kind of cool. Um, but great questions, great people. Um, grab a cup of coffee. Please join us at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. Okay, digging into today's QA. Um, I was talking with uh, Lalo. Lalo's got a kind of a complex situation here. He's training high-level sprinters. Um, he's got to train in groups. It's very difficult to individualize things under those circumstances. And then situations will arise where it may be an exercise that is ideal under many circumstances now becomes problematic. There are always secondary consequences that we have to be concerned with, especially with athletes where we're taking away elements of, of behavior that may protect them from their superpower. So left, left to their own devices, athletes will progress in a certain manner um, and the things that make them great can actually end up um, destroying them in the process. And so we have to protect them from themselves under these circumstances. And so this was a discussion that I think is gonna be useful for a lot of people because 
there's a lot of situations like this. It's like you have to make a decision as to how you're going to proceed. Is it safe to move forward with this type of an activity? Do we need to somehow create a substitution for an individual within a group? And so, uh, again, this is what was a problem-solving situation that, that, again, I think many of us face. So thank you, Lalo, for this question. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everyone have an outstanding Wednesday, and I will see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, I can. All right, awesome. Um, 400-meter hurdler, um, he... He's very good at what he does, and he's been doing it for a long time. So I can't get him. I mean, he has a big anterior tilt and then lost ER, <clears throat> but he still performs very well. The biggest problem that I have is when he goes to the gym and when we do bilateral symmetrical, like squatting, his lower back tightens up for about two or three days. So in my view, it's like, well, they have indoors coming in in December, end of December, January. I don't want to waste time coaching a squat or some type of like deadlift for him to like be able to orient correctly his abdomen and, and, you know, make sure he doesn't overdo it. So I was like, well, the kind of the same question as Manuel, can I just take off the bilateral symmetrical and just leave him with things like step ups and lunges and things that are um, unilateral and, you know, single legged. I, I, I don't think that at his level, I would need to put too much volume on him, the bilateral symmetrical. But I don't know what, what you think about that. Um, I, you're, you're asking a question with a maybe answer. Um, my first question to you is if you have an exercise that negatively affects him for a number of days after the fact, um, I would say that that's my first concern is like, okay, um, number one, maybe you do need to take it out or number two, you need to give him a different activity where that doesn't happen. And you're still benefiting from the force production capabilities of the bilateral symmetrical activity. Right. So it, it, is it like, is he back squatting? Is he front squatting? Does it matter which one? So we started uh, when he was postseason, we started with a Zerker heels elevated and he was fine. Okay. Then we moved so, in. Okay, so it's not necessarily the squat pattern that's the problem. Right. right, right. Then we moved into a heavier loaded, but then we went um, he uh, on the ground and we did a high uh, hex bar. So he was he was still his arms were low to the ground. He was good, but when we started loading a little bit more weight, then it became a problem. But the weight is not the problem. He moves it very fast. He moves the weight very well. And in the moment, in the gym, there's no problem. I don't feel anything a day after, two days after. It's like, oh, I'm tight. So it, it's like I haven't been wanting to front squat him or back squat him or anything like that because I just don't feel like that's going to be beneficial because it seems like he has the strength and power. It just doesn't seem to be put together, you know? But once again, but once again, he's, he's, he's telling you what the consequence of that activity is. So there is a threshold. There appears that there's a threshold at which you can train him and he does not have the negative consequence that's associated with it. Am I correct? Right. Right. 
Okay. So, so that's, so that's the first thing that I would respect is like, okay, so even though he has the capability to produce a higher force, the way he's doing it is, is potentially detrimental, even though it doesn't visually represent it, he's coming in and he's saying, yeah, yeah, I don't feel good after I do this level of work. Like he's probably telling you, it's like, this is where I need to, like, you can take me to that level and then stop there, at least for now. Or right. you do select a different activity. It's like, so you, so you did the, the searchers and everything seemed to be okay there. So again, it's like that representation of position doesn't seem to bother him. So maybe the front squat becomes a better way for him to produce force at a higher threshold without the negative consequence. So I think it's probably worth the experiment, you know, to, to, to try it because, and again, it's just an experiment. You, you be gradual, you get the representation of, of technique that you want to see, right? And then, and you kind of go from there versus just saying like, oh, let's just throw out all bilateral symmetrical, um, and again, maybe you have to, I don't know. Uh, again, I think this becomes your decision based on, you know, your, again, I, I hate to sound like a broken record today, but it's all about process. It's like, you just say, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do. Here's what happened. Right. If you can't, especially, and again, I, I realize that there's sometimes you just can't tell what the reason would be, but you do know you have negative secondary consequences here. You don't want yeah. to set the guy back two days every time you do a force producing workout, right? Like, like he's giving you a piece of information that's valuable. The hard part for you, and this is why you get to be the best coach in the world, is you have to make a decision. You say, all right, let's change this up because I had a squat representation before that wasn't bad. What's the difference here? Let's try another representation and see if it doesn't feel better. Because you give him a front squat, and maybe immediately he goes, he goes, oh, that's like, he could tell the difference between like the, the, the pulling the bar off the floor versus, versus the front squat. Maybe he can give you better information right away. And then you say, it's like, okay, let's see what happens the next two days. Right. Yeah. This is, this is just one of those things where it's like, there's, you know, 15 athletes all working out at once. And I'm thinking I can't sit and coach just this moment so i'm i'm thinking like all right what would be best on the overall but yeah i'll i'll I th- work I th- with them yeah I, I think i think you number one i think you stop doing the thing that sets him back right 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 um, for sure so again you either respect the threshold or you change the activity and then what i would do is i would i would change an activity that that would promote a similar representation that you would that you got from the one activity that did not bother him which was the zercher so again so maybe you got to do it heels elevated you need something that's going to promote some measure of, of yielding activity posteriorly as he's performing the activity right so front squat would do that maybe you got to go back to the zerchers right all right thank okay. you bill so, er's make spaces right that that's how we create a space to move into and then irs produce force and when we're talking about gravity right there's an up and then there's a down so er would lift me up away from the ground ir is going to push me down to the ground um i so i have a basic question um because i i guess i missed a couple of the episodes here from this series and then every time that happens i come back i was like what happened like i need a <laughs> i need a recap 
Um, so you were in mentioning before an ER and an IR spine, and I would just want to ask you to clarify that of what what is that? Okay, um, so let's just let's just broadly talk about ERs and IRs first. Okay, okay. So ERs make spaces, right? That that's how we create a space to move into. And then IRs produce force. And when we're talking about gravity, right? There's an up and then there's a down. So ER would lift me up away from the ground. IR is gonna push me down to the ground. Fair enough, so far so good, right? Okay, so um, if, if you were gonna measure somebody's hip, um, what, what measurement would create the space for you to move into in, in a hip? Real simple question. Okay, but ask that again, what measurement would- What measurement would you use in the hip to say, oh, we have, we have space to move into? Uh, hip flexion. Okay, so hip flexion is what? That would measure ER. ER or IR? I would measure ER with it. No, okay, so hip flexion is an ER measure. Yes. So there are only internal rotations and external rotations. So, so again, the straight plane thinking is, is where we run into a little bit of an impasse. You have to understand that, that as I'm moving somebody through a, a, a measure that we would consider traditional flexion, that is an external rotation measure. Okay, let's go to the spine now. What did they teach you in school? What did they teach you in school? If you bend forward, they call that what? Oh, flexion. Cool. Is flexion an yeah. ER measure or an IR measure? It's lessening space, right? So it's an IR measure. Okay. Hip flexion is an ER measure. Spine flexion is? An ER measure? Yeah. Okay. So, okay. so let, let's, use, let's, use, let's use traditional hip flexion here. So have you ever taken someone's leg into like full hip flexion and compressed their thigh against their belly? Mm -hmm. Do you think, think that's so. hip motion? No. What is it? I mean, hmm. Hmm. What's moving when you do that? How do you get a, like, literally, how do you get somebody's thigh to compress against their chest? Because in school, they told you that the hip joint only has 120 degrees of traditional flexion, right? So after a while, their pelvis and their lumbar spine will move with it. Okay. What okay. direction does the lumbar spine move? In that case, it would be flexion. Correct. Right? Which way is it turning? If I'm measuring the left hip, if I take your left hip and I bend it so far that I put your left thigh against your belly, what direction does the spine turn? Uh, left hip to the left. Okay, cool. So the left side of the spine is flexing. Mm -hmm. That would be an external rotation measure, which means that the spine is turning towards you. So whenever the spine turns towards you, that's ER of the spine on that side. It's okay. turning. It's turning, right? Okay. Get it? Okay. You understand? Yes. Okay, cool. So if both sides of the spine are are flexing okay what does that mean that the spine is doing is it internally rotating or is it externally rotating 
if one side is ER, then both if, no, no. If both sides are doing the same thing now. So, so, so both sides are flexing. Yeah, it still okay. should be ER. <laughs> it is ER. It is. Yeah, ER. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. From in right sideline, and you're rolling back into the left. Do not lead. Do not lead with the scapula. Good morning, happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, very busy Friday, very busy weekend. It's always busiest right before you go on vacation. So we're going on vacation next week. Um, so we'll, I'll stuff some stuff coming up for you uh, next week. So, so hang in there for that. Um, Two weeks out from the intensive 15th, very exciting. So we got a lot of stuff coming up. November's a busy, busy month. Um, so let's dig into today's Q&A. And this is with Ian. Ian works with a lot of soccer players. And he was, he was doing some of the rolling activities that we often, often talk about with a minor technical glitch that was creating some interference in his ability to recapture some of the relative motions. And so what we did is we actually kind of talked through um, what would be turning and then the same concepts I would use in rolling. And so we, we turn and rotate differently in high force conditions than we do in low force conditions where we're trying to recapture relative motion. And so basically that's what we broke down in a very, very short segment um, that I find, think will uh, be useful for a lot of people. Um, so thank you for bringing this up, Ian. If you would like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com askbillhartman at gmail.com and put 15 minute uh, consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everyone have an outstanding weekend. Um, I guess I'll technically see you probably in about a week or so um, as we come back from vacation. So everybody have a great weekend. I wanted to go through the, the rolling that we did uh, on Monday on the iFest call. See, uh, oh, you, yeah. you and Manuel. <laughs> You and Manuel are both making references to a call that was like three days ago that I've totally forgotten about. So I'll go, I'll go through it again. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so a narrow ISA, uh, very limited uh, right internal rotation in the hip. So we said uh, end and external rotation as well. So we said right side lying uh, to get right side line rolling from mid P back to get right ER. So I just wanted to, just to make sure I understand because as I see, so we are at right side lying, the, the spine starts turning to the left, the same. Yeah. You gotta be really careful with the way that you're representing this to me on video. Okay, because when you're rolling from in right sideline and you're rolling back into the left, do not lead, do not lead with the scapula. All right, all right. I, I should lead, uh, lead with the left hip. Put your, put your hands together out in front of you. Reach, reach as far as you can out in front. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to lead the turn with the, the rib that's right next to the left side of the spine. Not with your hands. So don't pull with your hands. Your hands are gonna move. 
Yeah. Your hands are going to move, but what I want you to do is I want you to lead with the turn of your spine, not the not the pull with your hands. Uh, okay. So you see where the turn comes from? Yeah. Yeah. So it goes spine, rib, space, then the scapula is going to get dragged with it. Don't push the scap back because you're going to block the turn. Oh, it's yeah. going to push you forward. So that's why, because I couldn't, the way I was doing it, I, I always thought, all right, I want to get ER and I would get ER even if I roll with the, but I would get, I would push them into late, right? Yes. 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 Yeah, makes sense. And yeah. as I as I do that, my 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 sacrum will orient to the to the will start turning to the left, but my thorax will be turned to the right, which is basically just like me stepping back with the left leg. So I'll be early on the right. So I will maybe, maybe, maybe. You know, it depends on how far forward you're 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 pushed here, but yes, you got the right idea. All right. Yeah, All you right. want an early representation of ER. You don't want the late representation of ER. All right. The difference? That's, yeah, that's why that's why I wanted to ask because like I was like, yeah, I'm I'm getting ER, but if I do if I do it this way, I'm pushing them further forward on their right side. Yeah. Because if I lead with the with my scapula. They will be late on the right side, which which will make things worse, right? Correct. Okay. So let's talk about this because this this is useful. This is useful. Um, do you mind doing the hand thing again? Okay. Remember what early propulsion represents. It's an expanded, it's a yielded representation, right? In ER, it's it's the yield, right? So that's yeah. an expanded version of ER, okay. The way I create that is to make space between the scapula and the spine, okay? So do that on the left side, make the space between the scapula and the spine bigger, not by sliding your hand forward, but by moving the, the rib cage back and turning the spine, okay? Yeah. Okay. So that is the ER representation, okay? Now, if you keep, pulling the rib back on that left side and the hand starts to slide toward you, that is putting IR on the ER representation. Do you understand that? All right, yeah. Okay, yeah. all right, now go back to even. Stop. Where are you, early, middle, or late? Um, early? No. Uh, you mean I go even with my ribcage as well? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm in mid. Okay, now take your left scapula and push your hand forward on the left. Early, um, middle, or late? Early, middle, or late? Late on the left. There you go. You see how it works? Yeah. So now yeah. bring yourself back to middle and now slide back into an early. So you have to lead. With the, with the you ribs. Need to lead, you have to move proximally first, not distally. Yeah, yeah. You see the difference? Yeah. Okay. And, and yeah. 